Thanks, Tim. I love our pastor, and I love for what he invests in us uh, in so many different ways. Uh, Anyone know what a pericope is before that? (laughs) Pericope, I thought for sure that those were fancy umbrellas that ladies carried in the 1800s. dancing around with my pericope. What's funnier is I saw, I saw uh, Tim post that. Uh, I wasn't here last Sunday, so I completely missed it. And I saw Tim post that uh, and, and write about it. And even it written out, I would have never in a million years come up with pericope. I read pericope, right? And so I even made a funny joke about the word that I had no clue <laughs> what it was. But in all seriousness, uh, I do love our pastor, Tim, just again, uh, in his friendship and his investment in us, uh, because words do matter. Um, and not just his words or words that we've never heard of before, but the words that come from Scripture uh, and come from the Word of God. And that's what this is all about. <clears throat> we don't get up here uh, to talk about great ideas. We don't talk about uh, our own ideas Uh, but we want to look at the words of God uh, that come off the page. Uh, And it's been great to go through the entire book of Luke. Uh, And as we progress through that, um, to see what God is communicating to us. So this morning, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 21, verses 1 through 4. Uh, Last time I spoke uh, and was up here in the front in this position to speak to you, uh, I had about 12 hours notice. Uh, and it felt a little scrambly, uh, to be honest with you, as I, Ben's laughing because, <laughs> because Ben was sick and I had about 12 hours notice. What's funny is Ben is now sick again, <laughs> but what's different is I, going through the calendar and, and looking at the, the schedule, I've had about three months to look at this, uh, and it's only four verses. So I say this to say to you, buckle up, kids, because, uh, you know, I've had three months to look at four verses, and... Uh, we may just combine all the services together um, and, you know, in order to, to get through it all. I'm kidding. Our focus this morning uh, and, and what I want to communicate to you is a very simple message. And that is Jesus changes everything. Well, no kidding. That seems like a very common sense statement and uh, a very simplistic message, but it encompasses so much. Uh, It encompasses how we view ourselves, our identity. Jesus changes everything. It makes sense as we look at it through the lens of how I relate to other people and perceive the world around me. Jesus changes everything. This morning, our focus most specifically is it certainly changes the relationship that I have with my resources. What I hang on to to say, this is mine and this is what I possess. Jesus changes everything. I'm going to look at that in greater detail this morning, but that is, again, our main focus, to, to walk away today and just meditate and pray and, and worship God around that thought that Jesus changes everything. Luke 21, 1 through 4, uh, read it with me. It says, Jesus, he looked up and saw the rich dropping their offerings into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow dropping in two tiny coins. Truly I tell you, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For all of these people have put in gifts out of their surplus, but she out of her poverty has put in all she had to live on. Let's pray. 
God, as we look into your word, as we open your word, uh, again, we want to hear only from you. God, would you speak into our hearts? And as we turn our hearts to you, God, may we uh, just be free of all distractions. God, would your Holy Spirit come into this place and continue to work in our hearts um, so that we would hear exactly what you want to tell us. God, your word is good for encouragement, for correcting, for strengthening. Uh, It's good for all things. We know that. And we trust that this morning as we look at these verses. It's in your name we pray. Amen. In that it's only four verses, we could and spend a great deal of time on these specific four verses, and we are. We're, we're going to be, be doing that. But how I'm doing that this morning is a little bit different than what I would normally do, and that is pulling in several other scriptures as well to speak to this one scripture. Uh, it's good because it teaches us that, and it shows us that the Bible, that scripture testifies to itself. Uh, that we look at four verses, and to unpack all that's going on here, uh, we don't look outside, we don't have to look outside of the Bible, we can look at other places within the Bible to figure out what's going on here and to get the full depth and scope of of what is happening here. And so we're going to be doing that today, and so there's going to be lots of other references, and encourage you to to jot those down, and uh, if, you know, I just reference it, but don't read it, we're going to be reading several of them, Uh, go back, your homework today is to read those other passages as well, and let God continue to speak to you uh, through his word, and all of these other references that point back to this Luke 21 passage. So in this passage itself, what is going on here? What is Jesus doing? He's here in the temple, and he's been here all week. It started back in chapter 19, uh, where Jesus, just off the triumphal entry, was now in the temple. And uh, his first interaction there was a pretty significant external display of what he was there to do, was to bring it back to its original purpose, to focus on worshiping God in the temple. And he drives out the merchants and flips over the tables. Uh, And uh, again, a pretty significant display of what's externally happening here in the temple. Jesus is always just as concerned with the internal, what's happening in people's hearts. And so we see this scene physically here where Jesus is observing uh, offerings being given. And it just says, and by when I say he's observing, it's it's not that the scene is that Jesus is over in the corner sort of tabulating and watching people and checking up on uh, all that are coming in to give offerings at the temple. Uh, He's not skulking in the corner going, I see you, uh, Eddie, uh, or whomever. Uh, No. He was teaching in the temple, and he looked up and saw this taking place. It's interesting. It's exactly the opposite of Jesus spying on anyone here. This is almost offerings in the temple, and what it had become, it is almost a spectacle. We could describe it as that. There were some there that definitely wanted to be observed and noticed uh, giving an offering. Physically, what it looked like is that there were 13 trumpeted coffers. And so maybe a box or something that was the base, and then literally what looks like a trumpet 
you know, that was bigger on the top and smaller on the bottom. And maybe you've seen these in, you know, definitely kid, kids' areas where there's those coin donation things where you put a coin in the slot and it like rolls around and, you know, it gets faster as it gets to the bottom. Uh, these were metal trumpeted coffers that people would come and throw their coins into. And so guess what? It definitely made a sound. And depending on what you threw in there, there would be all sorts of different types of sounds. Bigger coins, heavier coins made of different material would, I'm sure, have a, a different sound than something that was much lighter and, and less dense. Um, and so there was, quote-unquote, significance in offerings. People could tell a significance in offerings. It's also why if you back up to Matthew chapter 6 and look at the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is, again, challenging the heart issue, challenging the heart around giving, where he says when you give, when you give to the poor, don't sound a trumpet. It wasn't a literal, you know, like stand there with a bugle, but almost just the same. Like, hey, everybody look as you throw your money into these trumpeted coffers to be noticed by people around you. In any case, all in the vicinity here in the temple would hear what was taking place. As he was there, verse 2, it says, He also saw a poor widow dropping in two tiny coins. And by tiny, it's tiny in size and valuation both. It's estimated that each coin was uh, worth about a modern equivalent, an eighth of a cent. And so dropping in two, she had just given a quarter of a cent uh, here in the offering. And it's here that Jesus draws attention. Here he makes his teaching point. Verse 3 and 4, he says, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of these people have, more than all of them, for all these people have put in gifts out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, has put in all she had to live on. Did she really just drop in the offering, all that she had to live on, and, and walk away? Yeah, she did. How? How did she do that? I think the answer can be found from where the offerings were given from. It may seem weird to phrase it this way, but the rich, the poor widow, you and I, everyone in this room, we have a relationship with our resources. By resources, I mean our monetary wealth, certainly that, but also our time, our giftedness, all of the things that make us us are our resources. Again, the gospel changes everything. To understand from where the offerings were given, it's good to ponder how the gospel does change everything. I referenced Matthew 6 just a moment ago about giving and don't sound a trumpet while giving to the poor, but Jesus totally challenging and encouraging people to not put their pride, not put their hope in material things, but to trust in the Lord for all things. And again, giving reference to uh, birds of the air, lilies of the field, uh, of how none of those things worry about what, you know, what they wear or building up for themselves, but trusting totally that God would take care of them. And that is our model uh, for this as well, that Jesus is communicating. When I'm focused only on my abundance, I am easily held captive. But when I am aware of my poverty, it is then that I am free. We tend to view and have relationship with our resources in three ways. 
I relate to my resources for my satisfaction, for my significance, and my security. Again, the widow gave all of hers away. There was something different inside of her. Often to understand the present, to see what was happening, we look back to the original foundation to see what is going on. So here again, this woman, this poor widow, who is giving all that she had to live on into the offering as a gift to the Lord. What was taking place here? And let's go back and look at the original foundation of what, what is tithing? What is giving to God? What is the ability to, like Matthew chapter 6 uh, expresses and Jesus encourages and challenges us with, how do we get to the point to be able to say, everything I have, all that I am, wide open hands, God. It is yours. How does that happen? I'm going to rewind back to the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 14, verses 22 through 29. And here, God is communicating what tithing is. What is its practice? And and how is it done? And what is the purpose of it? Deuteronomy 14, uh, 22 and 23, starts out by saying this, that the Lord is speaking here and saying, Each year you are to set aside a tenth of all the produce grown in your fields. You are to eat a tenth of your grain, new wine, and fresh oil, and the firstborn of your head and flock, in the presence of the Lord your God, at the place where he chooses to have his name dwell, so that you will always learn to feel, fear the Lord your God. Tithing is a regular response. The wisdom here, the, the message here is, give back to God every year what you have produced what he has given you, what he has blessed you with. The truth here to to think on and let marinate in our hearts is that by giving tithing to God regularly, we know that prosperity did not depend on the cleverness of my own hands. So each year, as even back then, technology developed and different farming techniques, it was a very agricultural society, as, as different farming techniques developed and tools were developed to make Uh, the ground produce even more, or irrigation techniques, it wasn't the person who said, look what I have done. It was a conscious effort and an offering and a part of worship to give back to God to say, thank you for all that you have provided. Thank you for all that you have blessed me with. However, through time, as self-aggrandizing deception increases, I view my resources as mine to nurture, to promote, and to protect. So this brings us to transformational point number one. And that is, when I think I own all I possess, I am focused on my own satisfaction. When I think I own all I possess, I'm focused on my own satisfaction. And so I relate to what I have through the lens of how can it make me most happy? How can it make me feel the most good? Bring the most pleasure to myself. And so that is how I view my resources. And so whether I spend or save or where I point my resources all goes through the lens of will this make me happy? Will this bring me joy? <clears throat> Verses 24 and 20, through 26 of Deuteronomy 14 it says, but if the distance is talking about tithing and bringing your tithe to the temple, it says, but if the distance is too great for you to carry it, 
since the place where the Lord your God chooses to put his name is too far away from you, and since the Lord your God has blessed you, then exchange it for silver. Take the silver in your hand and go to the place your Lord your God chooses. You may spend the silver on anything you want, cattle, sheep, goats, wine, beer, or anything you desire. You are to feast there in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice with your family. It's interesting because it's beginning to transform, at least in my own human mind's eye, of what I have thought about tithing. Tithing Tithing is a flexible form of worship. There has been a wrong stereotype that has developed through time that that tithing somehow, or that giving gifts to God, giving offerings to God, holding my resources with open hands, that this somehow is an emotionless formulaic. And even in the Old Testament, we see a different picture that has developed. God is most interested in the attitude of giving than the act itself. The the location remained the same. He was still telling them to go to the temple to give the offering. The place where his name rested is how he describes it there. The flexibility in form removes the excuse most likely to be used by those whose hearts wrestle with this. So again, think about it in this context of the farmer or the agriculture who's saying, I, I, need to, I want to give a, a tenth of, of all I have grown or produced back to the Lord. And the temple is 38 miles away. Even with a cart and oxen, that could be a pretty significant haul. Uh, a, a lot of stuff to try to, to navigate. And so removing the excuse that our own human heart might have to say, well, it's just too cumbersome, it's just too inconvenient, it's just too wearisome to, to try to think, how can I bring my offering to the Lord? It's just too far away. Uh, again, God is most interested in the heart and is saying, you can exchange all of that for silver and then go to the temple. And when you get to the temple, buy whatever you wish, food, grain, Wine, beer, before we get too excited there, (laughs) remember what the point is. Remember the perspective. And it says, then eat it there in a feast in the presence of the Lord. So before we get too wound up in the ideas, dude, this is going to be an amazing tailgate party at Arrowhead because I can exchange my stuff for silver and then go to Arrowhead and say, woohoo, I'm worshiping. Yeah, you're worshiping something but not exactly the presence of the Lord. That is for sure. And so again, we see this flexible form of worship here that God is not so interested in saying, this is what it has to look like. He's saying, what is the condition of your heart? And I want your heart. It's a beautiful picture there, the thought of feasting together in the presence of the Lord and rejoicing with your family. Those are not subtle words. Uh, that is not a, um, a tame picture. But to be feasting, rejoicing in the presence of the Lord with your family is a wonderful display of worship. And as we think of all that we have and all that God has blessed us with, I want to praise God with that and within that and with, again, not only physical things that God has blessed me with, but the people around you that God has has blessed you with. When my satisfaction, and so we see again the the transformation taking place, that 
when my satisfaction, instead of thinking I own all, all that I possess, when my satisfaction is rooted in Christ, I am fulfilled. The New Testament, John 10.10, tells us that the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but Christ has come to give us life and have it to the full. Have it to the fullest. Tithing is a satisfying, giving offerings to the Lord is a satisfying exercise as well. There's reason for joy in giving to God because it is our recognition of God that brings connection. Our recognizing God brings connection to God. And again, it's symbolized well by the joyful meal of fellowship eaten by the whole family in the presence of God. So you think of maybe the best meal you've ever had with your family. There's something peaceful about that, isn't it? Like you get together at Thanksgiving and sit down at the table, and there's always that moment before you eat where everybody sits down and gets ready. Maybe the fork and knife are, you know, in position at the table, and it's just this scene of, wow, everything in this room, take a look around. All of it is reasoned to praise God and to worship God. All that he's provided, all that he's blessed with, um, all there represented. And so it is a real true act of joyful worship, a true moment of, of joyful worship that we can all participate in. Transformational point number two is that when I think I own all I possess, I'm focused on my own significance, my own significance. So again, the lens of everything that I have and that everything that I use goes through the lens of how does this make me famous? Or how does this establish me and my right and my position to get further ahead or to you know, get further down the road or further down the line? Offering description and tithing description in Deuteronomy verses 28 and 29. Listen to what it says. It says, at the end of every three years, bring a tenth of all your produce for that year and store it within your city gates. Then the Levite who has no portion or inheritance among you the resident alien, the fatherless, and the widow within your city gates may come, eat, and be satisfied. And the Lord your God will bless you in all the work of your hands that you do. It's a telling us to do. It's telling us that tithing has and giving gifts and offerings has a kingdom impact. There are physical needs being met here, true, which God says is good, but there's an even greater impact. There's an eternal impact being being uh, established here and, and taking place here. Um, so I don't give, I don't praise God with what I have my own significance. Did you guys ever watch The Natural? <laughs> it's like one of my favorite movies. And so, I don't know, he was a baseball player, but I'm a pastor, so maybe I'm going to get a Bible with Wonder Boy written, <laughs> written on it. Hit it out of the park right in the... The thunderstorm. That's not in my notes. <laughs> Just waiting for that. But tithing has a kingdom impact. It's not about my own significance, but the significance of the kingdom of God. How can what I have and what God has blessed me with do the most significant good for his kingdom? Deuteronomy telling us to bring all that you have and store it up so that others who are in need can have and eat and be, be satisfied. The widow, the resident alien, the Levite, encouraging them that <clears throat> there are those in need that we can use our resources to minister to. And what's the result of that? 
If you fast forward to the New Testament, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 through 15, we see the, the Corinthian church, an early church here, who is walking this out in daily practice. And so through their generosity, they are giving to the community around them and supporting other people that are in need. And what happened here in, in 2 Corinthians? 2 Corinthians tell us that there was much thanksgiving and praising being given to God, that the community around them saw the generosity of this church and were praising God. And it even says people were coming to know God through the ministry of this church. So giving has a significant kingdom impact. What's more important that you know, I establish myself as maybe a little more famous or something significant with 10 bucks? Or hey, 10 bucks can go towards missions or go towards ministry that promotes and tells and, and, and lets someone hear the gospel maybe for the very first time that has an eternal impact on their life. How can I use what I possess for its most significant impact? And that is worshiping God with it and letting him use it for his glory. <clears throat> Honoring God with all that I possess magnifies the significance of God. It expands his kingdom. I need to use my resources for things that matter. When all I possess is pointed towards my own significance, I am a prisoner. I am a captive. Also in the New Testament, we look at 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 3 through 10. It says, If anyone teaches false doctrine and does not agree with the sound teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ and with the teachings that promote godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing but has an unhealthy interest in disputes and arguments over words. From these come envy, quarreling, slander, evil suspicions, and constant disagreement among people whose minds are depraved and deprived of the truth, who imagine that godliness is a way to material gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out. If we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. But those who want to be rich fall, in fall into temptation, a trap, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and by craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs." A normal and natural question is, is money evil? Is the almighty dollar automatically bad? We've had some wonderful, great lunch discussions around this several times. And if you guys ever want to meet at McAllister's Tuesday, 1130, we can, we can fold you into some of these, these discussions. Love, love to have you. Um, but it's a natural to normal question. It's the right question to ask. Is money evil? Is having money immoral? Is it wrong? Some would argue yes and construct a religious thought pattern around this, that holiness comes from extreme piety. If you look back in church history, you certainly see people that have taken the, the vow of poverty. St. Anthony and St. Francis of Assisi both took this vow and, and lived it out, I think, purely. But I think there can be an extremist view that does develop within that, within our human heart, that says money itself is evil and having it corrupts. And, and what does that look like lived out? 
think lived out, what it looks like or what it can become, the danger of this is, is that I begin to look down my nose at people, right? That maybe I'm discontent with what I have, but clouding it and cloaking it in this thought that, well, you know, really that just makes me holier than you. And then we see maybe a car that drives by that's fancier than we think is is fancier than the one that, that we drive or a car that, you know, we've always looked at and thought, ooh, that's a cool car. And, and somewhere a thought develops in our head, well, they're probably a sinner, right? We see a house that, you know, people live in that is bigger than our house or, you know, in comparison, and we start that comparing game and, and think, man, they go to church? How can that be? I think there's a danger there when these extremist views develops that money itself is the evil and having it corrupts. On the flip side, some would argue no, and the pendulum can swing wildly in the opposite direction. And this is where a victory theology has developed and taken root, unfortunately, in, in many hearts. And that is that prosperity is my reward for my obvious righteousness. Believing that my relationship with God is legitimized based on my material possessions. My money is proof that God is impressed with me and my way is correct. How could we justify that in other regions of the world? I've had the privilege, the blessing uh, to travel to different places. Uh, I've been to China and uh, Eastern Europe uh, as well, the former Yugoslavia, and met people that challenged me and grew me deeper in my faith in both of those places. And in both of those places, their material possessions were teeny tiny, wore the same clothes every day because that's really all they had. Didn't even have a car, let alone, you know, getting into the comparison game of that car is nicer than my car. They didn't even have a car. And yet their faith grew me challenged me, encouraged me to grow deeper in Christ. All to say that both extremes are unhealthy and dangerous indicators of spiritual health. So is money evil? Is intentionally not having money morally right? Is willful poverty more righteous in the eyes of God? Is having money a badge of righteousness? Does that prove that I'm on the right path and on the right track? There's no in all cases. It is the love of money, as it says here in Timothy, the desire to be rich. And what does that mean? I mean, I think we all have moments of desire to say, well, I'd like to buy a car, or I'd like to buy a home, or I'd like to buy a pair of shoes, uh, whatever it is. The desire to be rich, I think, can be best described by seeking to satisfy the need, need through our possessions. That is what brings adultery, but, well, in some cases, adultery, I suppose. <laughs> idolatry. That's what brings idolatry. Seeking to satisfy the needs of life through our possessions, thinking that I have these needs, and the only thing that will fill that gap, that will fill that void, is the next shiny widget, or the next thing that's better than the one that I currently have. The desire to be rich. 1 Timothy, again, look at those words in verses 9 and 10 that it talks about where does the desire to be rich, where does that lead? Where does that, what does that establish and bring out in a person? Look at the words that are used here. 
It is a temptation, a trap, foolish and harmful desires. It plunges people to ruin and destruction. They are pierced with many griefs. And most sobering and staggering and startling of all, it says people wandered away from the faith because of this. How does this happen? How does this establish itself in our hearts? I got an email this week from my internet provider telling me that if I would just double my investment in them, if I would just pay twice as much, they would double my internet speed. Woo! Right? I want you to look around the room, and can you tell who has the, just, just by looking around, who has the highest internet speed in here? No one. Yeah, I can't tell. No idea. But what's interesting about that email is what caught my attention was the very first line. It was the subject line in my email. And so it was the first thing I see before I even get to what they were offering. And it said this. It said, start flexing on the neighbors. For my internet speed. Right? And it's funny and we laugh at that. But what is it doing? It is... It is pricking that little part of our heart that says you have to have more. You have to establish yourself as significant. And here's another way to do it, to show your superiority over your neighbors. So if any of my neighbors are watching online, what's up? (laughs) That's right. Second place on North Skiles Court. That's what you are. Right? How ridiculous is that? How crazy is that? And we laugh, but again, let that be a challenge to our hearts of of where has that small seed of significance taken root in our hearts to say, I am the most important thing, and everything that I have and everything that I possess is built around and structured around to make me significant instead of how can I use what I have and what God has blessed me with, no matter what it is, whether it's 12 bucks to my name or 12 billion bucks to my name, how can I use that for the glory and expansion of the kingdom of God? We flip that around, and as Christ transforms that in my life, we can say that when my significance is rooted in Christ, I am complete. I am complete. What a marvelous statement that is. To say no more do I have to fear the longing that I'm not enough, that somehow I have to add something else to my life or purchase something else to my life to look good enough, to drive the right thing, to live in the right place. And that's what makes me significant. No, when my significance is rooted in Christ, I am complete. Colossians 2, 8 and 10, it says, Be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition, based on the elements of the world rather than Christ. For the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ, and you have been filled by him who is the head over every ruler and authority. This is where we stand. This is where we reside, and this is where we can draw our comfort and our significance rooted squarely in Christ. So what do we do? First Timothy goes on in chapter 6, verses 17 through 19. It says, Instruct those who are rich in the present age not to be arrogant or to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God, who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do what is good, to be rich in good works, 
to be generous and willing to share, storing up treasures for themselves as, for, as a good foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of what is truly life. What do we do? How do we move forward? Don't be arrogant. Don't set our hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God. And I love this statement, who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. Is it more righteous to have nothing? No. Is it more righteous? Is it a reward to have everything? No. But what we do have, whatever it is, big or small, to say this is something I can enjoy because it has been richly provided by the Lord. I like to look at this in all things in my life. Why Do I celebrate it or do I coronate it? We celebrate the things that God has provided and blessed us with. We don't coronate things in our life. How do I tell the difference? How do I know? How can I diagnose if I've coronated something in my life that I shouldn't have? Well, think about what, life, what your life would be without that item. If your car was taken away, if that thunderbolt wasn't a thunderbolt, it was a tree landing on your car out in the parking lot. Would your satisfaction, would your significance, would your security be challenged, diminished, shaken, rocked today? How can we celebrate? Again, going back to that beautiful picture in Deuteronomy, sitting down and celebrating and worshiping God, rejoicing with your family in the presence of God, using all that we have to worship him and to glorify him. This brings us to transformational thought number three. That is, when I think I own all I possess, I am focused on my own security. A roadblock to letting God have access, to letting God reign over and transform the relationship to what I possess is an insecure belief that I have every rational reason not to. I have lots of excuses. I can come up with several of them right here, right off the top of my head. My son's a junior in high school, and he's going to be thinking about college this time next year. Well, he'll be thought about it and decided. And and so I need to be, you know, frugal and save as much money as I can because college expenses. Is that wise? Yes. Is that something that I need to be consumed about and say, this is the end-all, be-all of life? No. Because God is our provider. I can come up with other reasons. Well, I need to be tight or frugal with my my resources because I should be on a budget, and so therefore I can't give to God what is rightfully due him. I can't worship God with with what I do possess because, again, the list is long, and I have a plan, and I want to retire in six months or six years or 60 years. Who knows? But we have all of these reasons why we think we are in control and should be in control. What could the widow have used as a reason for not giving all she had to live on? We could come up with some. Maybe she even had some. Maybe even she she worked through those in her own heart and mind on her way to the temple or even before leaving for the temple. Being said, we have felt the pressure to pursue, to accumulate and establish our own kingdom thinking that this is what makes me secure as I think of the future. This is what will establish me and make sure I will be okay a year from now, 10 years from now. 
to challenge this thought around possessions as our security, I don't think we need to, to search very long or don't need to push very hard on the buttons that would say, maybe I've put a little too much security in stuff. Anyone pay attention to the stock market since January? How's that doing? No one? It's not good, guys. Don't look. Too soon. Too soon. Too soon. That's right. We don't, like I said, we don't have to look very hard or, or push very hard or push very long. We have heard about and certainly felt the impact of inflation in the world around us. And every time we go to the gas pump, who is rejoicing and, and worshiping? No, we're going, holy smokes, right? The current numbers on debt in America are just as sobering as well. <clears throat> this is where you're at this morning, this is where you find yourself, that we've walked through this, we've sort of poked the, the relationship in the areas of satisfaction, significance, and security, and you found that, man, my heart is in knots here. I have found that my heart is in my resources, and it's upside down. I want to leave you with several things, several truths this morning, and that's first is this, is that when my security, when our security is rooted in Christ, when we let him transform our security, I am sealed by his Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1.13 tells us that we're sealed by his Holy Spirit in him, the fullness of that. John 10.28 tells us that nothing can wrest us from or wrestle us or snatch us from the hand of God. And so in that, I want to say to you, take a breath. You are not what you do or do not own today. Who you are is not what you do or do not own. Your satisfaction, significance, and security has nothing to do with that. It's in Christ. And if we found that my satisfaction, significance, and security has been tied up in that because I feel the threat around those things. The good news is Jesus can transform that and does transform that. Second thing is, if you found yourself in, in just thinking about finances and, and what, I, what I have in front of me leaves you just short of breath, the invitation that we're here to help. Your church body, your church family. LCF is here to help you with that. Part of discipleship is walking together through that. And so if you have more questions than answers around how do I make sense of this and how can I find a way to, <clears throat> one, be wise with what I have, but also give God maximum glory with what I have, we can connect you with people who have, have walked this road, whose spiritual giftedness are in this area. would love to walk with you uh, in that as well. The beautiful opportunity to close our time together with communion. And I'm going to invite the, the worship team to come um, and set our hearts towards thinking uh, about what communion is. And again, this focus of the gospel changing everything, transforming everything. The message of the gospel is this and how it transforms 
In the garden, Adam and Eve were enticed by the lie when Satan said, you're not satisfied, you're not significant, nor secure enough. You need something else. This apple, this forbidden fruit, this over here outside of what God has planned and provided for you, this is what's better. And for thousands of years, humans and you and I have been chasing and choosing that something else. I long to be satisfied and I have chosen what I think makes me feel good. I've overbooked and overjammed my schedule to the point that I have no room to connect to another human being and I buy into the lie of false rewards. That man, if I would just jam my schedule with this one more activity, that's the thing that will make me happy. We've chased after an illicit relationship and a selfish attempt to relate and to be known. It will make me feel good. I long to be significant and have chosen through great effort and strain to create an elaborate image of what I want you to see. I have bought clothes. I have bought cars. I have bought houses, all in an attempt to establish my own significance. I long to be secure and have chosen the choices left me vulnerable to an overwhelming fear of not being enough. Jesus can transform all of that. Choosing something other than God is sin and breaks our relationship with God. And sin cannot be in the presence of God. And now broken by sin, we are in sin and totally incapable of restoring this relationship ourselves. We are in extreme poverty. It is only when I am aware of my poverty am I aware of my dependence. I am unable to save myself. The chances are not slim. They are absolute zero. Yet here is the moment of hallelujah. Jesus left the temple and gave everything to secure our reconciliation. This is our salvation. I invite those who are distributing communion to come and bring the elements and pass it out.